how fitting it was that we began our services this morning by going to God in prayer and thanking him for opportunities like this and expressing that we never want to take these opportunities for granted. And it's very easy for us to come together on a Lord's Day late in the year and say, well, we've been doing this now for 11 and a half months. We'll just keep on doing it. We don't know when the time may come when that opportunity is taken away from us. And we hope that that will not be the case. We hope that we, for the rest of our lives and for generations to come, will have the freedom to worship and we will enjoy that freedom together. But we are very glad to be together today. And I invite you to take your Bibles and to follow along to consider the things that we're going to discuss today for just a few moments. If you'd like to open to the book of 2 Corinthians where Brother Brian uh, led us in our scripture reading just a few moments ago, we're going to pick up there in verse 8 of the fifth chapter of 2 Corinthians. Glad to have you with us. Glad that you have chosen to be with us. And as Cameron pointed out, uh, we're thankful for our visitors joining us and encouraging us today. We've got just a handful of weeks, less, uh, less than a handful of weeks, left in 2023. And so here we are, we're getting ready for 2024. Who can believe that the new year is ready to be here? Just a few sermons left from David or from me or tonight from Lord willing, Brian Walsh, who will do a spectacular job as he always does. And so I'm going to use my last two or three sermons of 2023 to begin thinking about what we often think about this time of year. And that is the idea of how do we progress in the new year and make improvements. And one of the ways that we do so is by making it our aim in the new year and in the final 15 or 16 days of this year, making it our aim to please God. That is our aim. My grandmother, uh, who I loved dearly, who passed away about 15 years ago, used to always use that phrase. So, well, I'm, I'm aiming to do this, or I didn't aim to do that. And I, I miss hearing that. And whenever I, someone uses that phrase, I think about my mammal ping. But we make it our aim where we are have a bullseye in front of us to please our God. And that comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, which is going to be our anchor text this morning. And I invite you to open there as we're going to read beginning in verse 8. Brian read for us the previous four or five verses, which ended with a statement that we are very familiar with in verse 7, where it says, we walk by faith and not by sight. But then Paul goes on into the next little set of thinking, and he says in the next three or four verses that I'd like to read and then discuss for a few moments, he says, we are confident. Notice he uses the word confident twice in this particular context. We'll come back to that in just a moment. He says, we are confident, yes, well-pleased rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Therefore, we make it our aim or our objective or our goal, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are well known to men, well known to God, and I also trust are well known in your consciences. 
So I wanted to think about some observations and some applications. And so we're going to split this study into two sections, the first of which are some principles that are relatively basic, and then we're going to look at some pragmatic, some uh, practical things that we need to consider as well. First and foremost, we need to have confidence in our home. And this goes back to a sermon that I did maybe about three to four months ago, where I really focused in on this idea of the hope that we have in heaven. And you may recall in one of those sermons, you may not recall every sermon that David or I ever preached, but certain ones may stand out, that I put on the screen that if you were to die today, would you be confident that heaven is your home? And we had all kinds of possible responses, I hope so, or perhaps so, and we were trying to push ourselves to thinking about no I'm going to heaven, not with a sense of boastfulness, not with a sense of overconfidence, but with a sense of boldness and confidence that God wants us to appreciate. It says here in verses 6 and in verse 8 that we are confident. And I believe that we do ourselves as Christians a disservice in a religious world that is filled with denominational individuals who seem very confident, and then we come on the scene and we say, well, we're not really sure if we're going to heaven or not. We do ourselves a disservice, and we do not do what the Lord, it seems, is asking us to do here in this particular passage. And so it reminds us of the fact that death is an appointment, death is in many ways an equalizer, that death is a promise-filled part of the life for all Christians. In fact, there's rarely a funeral service or a memorial service for someone that we believe based on the fruit of their lives that they were righteous where it says in 116 verse 15, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints, that that particular phrase isn't used, that that quotation isn't utilized. It is a beautiful thing when a saint dies. And that is a far cry from what we see in the world today, which looks at the, the concept of death as being this horrible thing. And I'm not to suggest that I, I don't have some fear associated with it. I hope that it's not uh, anything that's too painful, but we do not get to choose those things in our lives. But we as Christians are confident that even when death comes our way, that good things come after that. And so it goes back to this phrase in verse 8, which is repeated in Philippians chapter 1, which we'll look at here in just a second or two, where he says, pleased rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. So turn over, if you would, just maybe 10 or so pages in your Bibles to the book of Philippians chapter 1, where Paul seems to talk about this in a more personal tone. It seems as if the book of Philippians is written later than the book of 2 Corinthians. Most people agree to that particular point. Most people agree that we are now in the closing months, if not the last year or two of the life of the inspired writer. And he says here, for to me to live is Christ... And to die, it is gain. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. And I appreciate our brother Ryan picking that song that goes so well with that concept. Yet what I shall choose, I cannot tell. 
For I am hard-pressed between the two. I have a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in this flesh is more needful for you. And here we go, verse 25, one of Paul's favorite concepts of confidence. He says, we are confident of this, and I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy the faith, so that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. So I was thinking about this particular concept, and in fact, wrote it out in my notes just so that I'd make sure that I came back and revisited this, but how do we really feel about that concept of departing this life to be present with the Lord, absent from the body so that I might be present with God? Well, that sounds wonderful, but not right now. That sounds like a great idea, but I've got other things that I need to do First, I think Jesus even spoke about the idea of looking back before you look forward. I'm not about to say that I have mastered the appropriate attitude in this line. But if someone were to come to you and say that you've got 48 hours to live and we'll be generous and give you that 48 hours and that you have the time to say goodbye to your loved ones and the things that you would like to do and say your final thanks to those who are not believers and to get them to wake up before it's too late, would that really be that bad of a thing to be able to depart this life that is riddled with so much disappointment and then to be present with the Lord? I'm not suggesting that that's easy. But I am suggesting that seems to be what Paul is talking about both here to the church at Corinth as well as to the church at Philippi. We often think about the thief on the cross. We won't take the time to read about the one who was penitent, the one who we always talk about. Someone once said, well, which thief do you want to talk about? But there were two that were present there, at least two individuals who were criminals. And in Luke 23, verses 39 through 43, Jesus says, assuredly today you will be with me in paradise. He doesn't say, I think you'll be with me in paradise. And in Luke chapter 16, verse 22, which I believe Brian is going to talk just a little bit about tonight, so I don't want to talk too much about it and steal his thunder. But I do think it's important to note that when Abram, or that when Lazarus died, it says, The angels carried him up to Abram's bosom. And then in the next statement, it says the rich man died and he was buried. There's some speculation as to whether or not that's the end of the story for both of those individuals or how that maybe works. And eventually we'll find out when this life comes to an end. But the point that I'm trying to make is that when we think about death, which is something that we will have to endure and that we will have to go through, that in order to aim to please our God in 2023 in the remaining days and then in 365 days that come, Lord willing, in 2024, we've got to make it our aim to have confidence in our home. But there's a second thing that Paul seems to suggest here, and that is we need to consider strongly our responsibility, which goes to the heart of the study that we're making today. And the verse that Uh, gave birth to this particular study, where in verse 9 it says, we make it our aim. Notice Paul didn't say, I make it my aim, nor did he say, I want you to make it your aim. He says, we are in this thing together. 
I oftentimes like to think as, as Paul as being this great uh, cheerer on the sideline saying, you guys are going to continue doing it. I know you're going to make it. Yes, there are times, especially in his previous letter to the church at Corinth, where he really gets after them and rightly so. But here he says, you are going to make it. The word that is used here, if you understand it, literally I'm told is the idea of ambitious labor. When you make something your aim, you have an ambition and it is laborious, not in a bad way, but in a good way. There are various things that you set your mind to, that you set your hands to, that you set your your thoughts to, and you dedicate yourself to a project, to getting it done and to doing the very best job that you possibly can. And that ambition is associated here in verse 10. Verse 9 says, we make it our aim. And so to please God, it seems to me, is something that we all would appreciate and that we all want to do. And it's going to be something which requires our effort to be accepted by him. And that is necessary in that it requires some effort. And there are a number of passages that come to mind. I'm just going to give you two or three here very quickly. Matthew 6, 33 is a verse that all of us have likely memorized. Or at least if we haven't, in the moment you hear the idea of seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all the other things that you would otherwise prioritize will come into play and will come to pass. And there are lots of illustrations that have been used over the years to help us understand that. But the fact is, is we put God first before anything else. Paul would write to the church at Rome in one of the most important letters ever written in humanity. And he says, I am begging you. I am beseeching you. I am imploring you, brethren, by the mercies of God that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, that you are holy, you are acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And then he says here, Do not be conformed to this world, but instead be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. That's your responsibility. That's my responsibility to always be about that business of doing exactly what God has asked us to do. If you go back to the letter that we're reading from here in 2 Corinthians and you go over to chapter 10, Five chapters over, he says, I, Paul, myself, here he is again. He says, I am pleading with you. I am begging you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in presence am lowly among you, but being absent and bold toward you. He says, I beg you. He says, I beg you that when I am present, I may not be bold with that confidence by which I intend to be bold against some who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. Indeed, our weapons are not carnal, but are mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. And then in one of his two letters to the young man, Timothy, he says in chapter 4 and in verse 8, Indeed, bodily exercise profits very little, but godliness is profitable for all things, having a promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. And on and on and on, the apostle Paul and Jesus and Peter and James and John and the others are all in concert saying, 
Know what your responsibility is. And we have that responsibility to be faithful to the Lord. We have confidence in our home. We consider our responsibility. And then thirdly, we appreciate, if you would, the conclusion of life. Indeed, going back to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, dropping down to verse 10 in the text that we are using as our outline today, it says that we must all appear before the judgment seat. That is a frightening thing to consider. We began today, as Carrie led us in prayer, by talking to our God, and Carrie described him as divine and holy. He is awesome, and he is a God worthy of fear, as we'll talk about in a couple of moments. Death is a certainty, and with it comes an answer that we must give. And this reminds me of so many different passages and calls to mind so many different thoughts in the Old and New Testament alike. But in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13, a passage that, again, many of us have memorized where it talks about fearing God and keeping his commandments, for that is man's all or the whole duty of man. And he says, why does that matter so much? Well, let me tag on verse 14, Solomon would say. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. Every time I think about that passage, I think about what I did not put on the screen, and that is in Romans 2 and verse 16, in the day when God will judge the secrets of men. I don't know how God is going to go about doing that. I I really don't. I also don't understand, and if you can help me out with this, help me out but I'm not in the mind of God. How he knows our secrets, he will judge our secrets, he, will, he knows everything about us, but yet he says he will remember those things no more, later in the book of Hebrews and quoting from the Old Testament. And to be very frank with you, I'm not really concerned with how God does all that. I'm just glad he does it. And I'm just glad that he will know everything about me, but yet his grace is sufficient to save. That's good enough for me. And we can debate the finer points of how all that happens. And then when we get to heaven, we can say, yeah, you were right. I was wrong. I I figured out how he did it, if, if we even care at that point. But we must work to please our God and make it our aim, he says here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. Hebrews 9, verse 27 is a verse that uh, it seems that I use almost every funeral service I've ever done, at least the vast majority of them. It is appointed for men to die once, but after this comes the judgment. And then verse 28, the last verse of that ninth chapter, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many to those who eagerly wait for him. He will appear a second time apart from sin, for the purpose of salvation. And of course, to borrow from the phrase that Paul would use here and elsewhere in the New Testament, the answer on the day of judgment that you receive and that I receive is wholly dependent on what we do, quote, in the body, what we do in this life. In Matthew chapter 7 and verse 21, near the end of that great sermon that Jesus spoke, he says, Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, 
will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And later in that same gospel, according to the inspired writer and apostle Matthew, he would record these words which say, come, you blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Sometimes we use the phrase, enter in into the joys of your Lord, and rightly so. That's the conclusion of this life. We have confidence in our home. We consider our responsibility. We appreciate that life will come to an end. And fourthly and finally, we need to be men and women who are convicted, men and women who are persuaded. And so we go back here to the text in verse 11, where it says, knowing therefore, knowing the terror of the Lord, we'll talk about that here for just a second or two in just about 30 seconds. He says, we persuade men, but we are well known to God and also trust are well known in your conscience. The fact of the matter is, is we persuade men and we are too persuaded. Isn't that what we're doing on a, on a daily basis? And as we get to the applications here in just about two or three minutes, one of the key things that we should do is try our very best to persuade others to think as the Bible thinks for their own good and for their own protection. We are convicted in part because of fear. And we have had, oh, I can, I can think just in the last 36 months, uh, at least a half a dozen good sermons uh, by uh, David and others who've really kind of done a nice job of helping us rethink about fear and that we need to be afraid of our God. And so we think about passages like Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and verse 13 that we made reference to just a moment or so ago. Or Hebrews chapter 10, where it says, indeed, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a God who lives and a God who judges. If we do not repent of our sins, we will be, going back to Matthew chapter 25, dropping down four or five verses from where we read just a moment or so ago, openly convicted on judgment. And that is not something that any of us want. We are convicted men. And everybody who is a Christian, everybody that's been baptized that's present here today, which is a large percentage of the group that is represented today, has been convicted in the sense that you said, I'm wrong. I'm not right. I wasn't living correct, and I'm making changes to do better. And as we approach the final two weeks of 2023, and as we think about positive resolutions and changes for 2024, let us always be convicted of the fact that we serve a loving, awesome, holy, divine God who also has the power to send us to hell. And we need to make sure that we live appropriately. So what is it that we do? What is our aim? Our aim is to please God. Well, I want to conclude in our final five to 10 minutes with some practical, pragmatic things to think about. And that is our aim is in many ways going forward for the remainder of this year and certainly in the new year with which God, Lord willing, will bless us. Our aim is others' education. Ourselves, yes, we're always trying to educate ourselves, always trying to inspire ourselves with God's words. 
We want to share the message with others. And I want to use those four different things that we talked about over the previous 20-some minutes and then land it in these four applications. And the first of those is this. I believe that we should be men and women who live, and I've underlined talk, in confident terms about death, about Christ, and about salvation. When you think about that, look for openings in everyday conversation. Or in the words of one of our shepherds this morning, see others as souls needing to be saved. Every person that we see, if we look at it through that set of lenses, will be an important person to us. And I'll be the first to admit that sometimes I don't always have those lenses on. What can this person do for me? How can this person help me? What can this person do to assist me? Throw those glasses away and put on the lenses that say there's a soul that needs to be saved regardless of what he or she can do for me. Certainly, when you think about deaths, when you think about sickness, when you think about someone who unfortunately loses their job or doesn't get the promotion and the raise that's associated with it, those are all those open doors that we pray for. And it's very right that we pray for open doors to start those conversations, to have spiritually-based discussions with our friends and neighbors and coworkers. But we can't just pray for the open doors. We have to actually turn the knob and go in. And that sometimes is the more difficult aspect of that. Let me suggest to you, secondly, that we should not be afraid of hard work and sacrifice in the name of Christ. We should not be afraid of hard work and sacrifice in the name of Jesus Christ. Is there anybody that ever did that? Absolutely, and it seems to me his name is Paul. Jesus, of course, is the epitome of sacrifice and hard work and all that is good and righteousness. But when you have read so much of what Paul has said, certainly in these four or five verses to the church at Corinth, it reminds me of what the preacher in the olden days wrote on a board that stuck with me as if nothing ever else would stick. And he said, wear yourself out doing right. So there's something good about being tired at the end of the week because you've done so much good for others. And don't sit back and say, whoa, I've done a lot of good for others this week. But you say, I have done some good, but that's my job. That's my responsibility. That's my pleasure. And it's a good thing that I'm tired as a result of that. Let me suggest to you two more applications. And one of those is we should walk each day with a knowledge that our lives are temporary. But the bill has done a, just an incredible job of taking us through Galatians and now taking us through James. And we need to read James 4 on a regular basis and incorporate its language into our daily walk where we understand that life is here for a moment and then it vanishes away. And to those of you that are younger, certainly younger than me and in your 20s and 30s or those of you in your teens, and you may think, and we hope that it is truly the case that you have 50 to 60 to 70 years left in your life, you have all known or you will in the coming years know of someone that is in your peer group 
that at the tender age of 18 or 20 or 25 or 30 or 35 loses his or her life for some reason. And as tragic as that is, it's a stark reminder and a needed reminder that life is like the mist, like a vapor, here for a moment, and then it vanishes away. And let me suggest to you the the key point that I made just a few moments or so ago as we end, and that is we should never be afraid to admit our fear of God and how it motivates us. I was having a study just a few days ago by phone with someone and was trying to share that God is indeed a very loving and patient God, but he is the one who will say, depart from me. Satan's not the one that says, depart from me. Satan's there saying, come on in, I'll I'll take you. God, our judge, will be the one that says, I don't know who you are. Even after we say, but I've done all this good in your name. I've been faithful. I talked about church stuff, and I even went to church a couple of times a year, or maybe more often than that. We've got to admit this to ourselves. We've got to admit this to our brethren, and we've got to certainly admit this to our non-brethren, to those who we're trying to save and try to teach and try to convert to Jesus Christ. Our aim is to share this message with others. And so I hope that the things that we talk about this Lord's Day, as well as in the next couple of Lord's Days, if the Lord wills for the next two weeks of 2023, that indeed there are things that will help us to close out 2023 with a sense of preparing for what comes as we try to make it our aim to please our God. If we make our goal to please God, he'll forgive us. God is faithful and is just to forgive us if we confess our sins to him. But of course, that is all dependent on the fact that we have a relationship with God in the first place, having believed, repented, confessed, and been baptized for the forgiveness of sins. And we hope that if that's something that you've yet to do today, that you'll take opportunity to do so. You may be listening today, and this may be the hundredth sermon or or 300th sermon, or maybe the thousandth sermon you've heard. And there's nothing that I've said that's necessarily spectacular that would convict you, but the Bible will convict you, and God's truth will convict you. And if that's the case, where you've made the choice to today become a Christian, we would invite you to do so. If you need to make a public correction, where your life is not where it should be as a child of God, ready to assist you, are almost 200 men and women who love you dearly and who will do anything for you spiritually and who will love you back into the Lord as you repent. If we can help you and pray and strengthen you, we'd love the opportunity to help you as we work together to make it our aim to always please God. Let us know if we can help while we stand, while we sing.